0: lost and found the chances are we've all spent a considerable amount of time searching for something that we lost and whether we're talking about the car keys that we misplaced again or 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 maybe the, the the glasses that you know we can't seem to find because they're still on our head yeah it's not uncommon for us to spend at least some portion of the day looking for something that we lost According to one calculation, Americans spend an accumulated 2.5 days every year looking for lost items. Yeah, by the end of the year, you will have spent two and a half uh, days looking for something that you lost. Over the course of the average life, well, it's estimated that we'll spend 6.5 months, which is equivalent to 5,000 hours looking for those things that we lost because no, I'm sorry, we don't remember the last place we left it. It's also interesting to note that Americans also spend upwards of $2.7 billion every year. That's right. All Americans together spend about $2.7 billion every year replacing something that we lost. It's a lot of money. And, And it's sad to say that not all lost items are so easily replaced. You know, not all lost items can be replaced by a trip to the store or a click there on Amazon. For example, how would a person go about replacing a lost lottery ticket worth half a million dollars? How do you replace that? This was the dilemma that a North Carolina woman named Anna Maya was forced to face after losing her winning lottery ticket. This all all took place during a move. She was moving out of one place and into another and it got packed away. And once she realized that her ticket was a winning ticket, she couldn't remember where she put it. You better believe that Maya, she started to stress out as she searched high and low, looking everywhere for that lost lottery ticket. And listen, the lottery ticket had an expiration date. And that date was soon coming. Thankfully for her, days before the ticket expired, she found that winning ticket. It was pressed between the pages of an old school notebook, which is exactly where she left it. And that's why I just tell people go 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 look at the place where you left it because that's where you lost it. It's that simple. Now as we consider the way that Anna Maya diligently searched for that winning lottery ticket so that she could find it, you know before the expiration date, I would point out that much like that lottery ticket, we all have an expiration date. Might not, not like to hear that, but it's true. We all have an expiration date. And with that being the case, you know, we can take great comfort in knowing that those here in this world who are lost, well, the Lord Jesus is determined to seek and save the lost prior to the expiration date. And he does this so that sinners like us might be saved before that day of judgment. Now, as we study the scriptures before us this morning, we're going to begin to see first of all, that our savior was sent to seek those who are lost and we can praise the Lord for that. Secondly, we'll learn that our Savior was sent to summons those who are lost. And and thirdly and finally, we'll see that our Savior saves those who are lost when they trust in him. And with all this as our outline, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Here we find the Lord Jesus seeking the lost there in the city of Jericho. And as you make your way to the 19th chapter of Luke's gospel account, I just want to spend a second putting our text back into its context. It'll help us to remember that the Lord was making his way to Jerusalem and The reason why is because the time had come for him to be crucified, and and as he made his way from northern, uh, uh, the region of Galilee, down to Jerusalem, you know, he ended up approaching the city of Jericho, and before entering the city gates of Jericho, well, Jesus miraculously restored the sight of a blind beggar, who then immediately began to follow him, and we learned about that story in our study last week, but now, here in our text today, we find the Lord Jesus, he's now leading his disciples into the city of Jericho, and with the context in mind let's pick up our study of luke chapter 19 i want to begin reading there at verse one here we learn that jesus entered and passed through jericho now behold there was a man named zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich and he sought to see who jesus was but could not because of the crowd for he was of short stature So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, he has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Lord, look, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Jesus said to him today, salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And here in our text today, we find the Lord Jesus. He's helping his audience to understand that God the Father sent his only begotten Son to come seek and save the lost. And just to be clear about this, you know, that word lost found there at the end of verse 10, well, it's translated from a Greek word which speaks of, you know, a television series that goes nowhere. You know, that, no, okay, little late on that one. So the word lost in Greek actually refers to that which is missing or something that has vanished. Just to be clear, this is the same Greek word that the Lord Jesus used when he informed his audience that he was sent to seek and save the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so we see that the word lost in that context is being used of people who have lost their way. And so Jesus was sent to seek and save the lost. What what does this mean? That he was sent to seek and save those who have lost their way or or those who who are not in his fold. And so we can rejoice in knowing that Jesus came to seek and save lost people. At the same time, we should also notice that this tax collector named Zacchaeus, he also sought Jesus Christ. Just to be clear, it'll help you to know that the word sought, which is found there in verse 3, it's translated from a Greek word, It was used of those who strive to find whatever they're searching for. And so that's what Zacchaeus was doing. He was striving to find Jesus. The same word is also used of those who are determined to acquire the object of their desire. And what this means is that Zacchaeus was determined to seek the Lord Jesus. And the reason why is because he wanted to spend time with our Savior. In light of this desire, I should take a moment to remind you of something that Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3. It's there where Paul declares, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. There is none who seeks after God. As we consider the point that Paul was making there, I, I want to take a moment to ask you know, how is it then, if Paul is correct, how was Zacchaeus able to seek the Lord Jesus if no one seeks after God? In order to answer this question, it'll help you to know that the Greek word that Paul used in Romans chapter 3 it's actually translated from the same Greek word that Luke was using when he tells us that Zacchaeus sought Jesus. And yet with one minor difference, the, 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 the root word found here in Romans 3 actually includes the prefix ek, which speaks of origin. What this means then is that when Paul says no one seeks after God, what he's saying is no one initiates the search for God the sinner who is left to their own depravity will never initiate their search for God. And with that being the case, we can rejoice in knowing that our Savior was sent to initiate the search. Our Savior was sent to seek and save the lost so that we can respond in seeking him back. With this in mind, we should take some time to consider the way that Christ Jesus enabled Zacchaeus to seek him out. To explain my point, I should remind you that the Israelites were commanded to travel to Jerusalem for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, as well as the Feast of Booths. That's right, three times a year, every Israelite was required to go to Jerusalem and celebrate these annual feasts. It's also interesting to note that there were actually three pilgrimage paths that would take someone from Galilee to Jerusalem. You could take three different paths, three different routes. There was the western route that followed the coastal plain to the promised land. And, and this was the longest route, which was typically taken by those who wanted to avoid all of those Samaritan cooties, you know, so they would take the long way around. Then there was the central route, which was a straight shot from Galilee through Samaria to Jerusalem. And the pilgrims who took this path, well, they were less concerned about Samaritan cooties and they just wanted to get there as quickly as possible. But then there was the eastern path, which was also taken by those who, well, they they didn't really want to take that straight shot. They didn't want to take the longest route, but they didn't mind crossing over the Jordan River twice. And, And this was the pilgrimage path that the Lord Jesus chose as he made his way to Jericho. Now, one reason for believing this is based on a very small detail that Luke records back in Luke chapter 17. It's in verse 11 where Luke tells us that it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. In other words, as Jesus made his way to Jerusalem, He followed a border route that actually split Judea and Samaria. And this is the border route that was actually the beginning of that eastern or trans-Jordan route, which would have taken him down to Jericho after crossing the Jordan River twice. The Apostle, uh, Apostle Matthew confirms this in the 19th chapter of Matthew. There we learn that the Lord Jesus departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So as he made his way to Jerusalem, we know that he crossed over the Jordan and and then ended up in Jericho. This was that Eastern route. Jesus took the second longest route as he went out to seek and save the lost. And that's why he went to Jericho to seek and to save the lost Now, in order to grasp why this route is so important, I want to take another look at our text here in Luke chapter 19. Let's back up and begin reading once again there at verse one. Here we learn that Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now, behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich and he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. Now, as we take a closer look at these verses, we must not fail to recognize here that this tax collector was able to see Jesus because Jesus first decided to take this very specific route, which led him through Jericho. If Jesus would have taken one of the other two routes as he made his way to Jerusalem, well, the chances are Zacchaeus wouldn't have seen our Savior. Chances are Zacchaeus wouldn't have even known to seek our Savior. Thankfully for him, the Lord decided to take this this road to Jericho as he set out to seek and save the lost. And in this way, he was actually providing Zacchaeus with the perfect opportunity to seek him. Jesus sought the lost and gave Zacchaeus the chance to seek him back. In order to further prove my point that Jesus was providing Zacchaeus with a way to seek him, I want to take a moment to consider the short stature of Zacchaeus, or as the old children's song goes, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. In other words, Zacchaeus was too short to see over the crowd. And listen, the crowd wasn't that tall. The the average height of an Israelite at this point in time was about 5'1". And if you can't see over a crowd that is on average 5'1", you're short. You're real short. Zacchaeus was a wee little man and, and... He couldn't see over the crowd and and yet he was a smart man. So he ran ahead on the route that Jesus was taking and he climbed up in a sycamore tree in order to seek our savior. And with that being the case, I want to take a moment to remind you of something that John wrote in John chapter one. There we learn that the infinite logos or the word of the Lord, uh, the word of God is the creator of everything made. the the Logos of the Lord or the infinite mind of God is the creator of everything that was made. And we know that the Logos tabernacled with us, this is the God man, Jesus Christ. And so what this means then is that Christ Jesus is the creator of everything that has been made. That includes the tree. Zacchaeus climbed Christ Jesus enabled Zacchaeus to seek our savior. And he did this by providing Zacchaeus with a tree to climb. Pretty cool. And while it's true that the Lord was the one who created that tree, which enabled Zacchaeus to see our savior. Listen, it's also true that Christ Jesus made the tree upon which he was crucified Jesus allowed himself to be nailed to a tree so that we might all seek our Savior. In order to prove my point, I should take a moment to remind you that the cross of Christ was made from a tree. And uh, what the Bible doesn't tell us is what kind of tree was used, but it really doesn't matter. What we know is that all things were made by him and for him. And with that being the case, we can be certain that our Savior is the one who created the tree that became the cross upon which he was crucified. With this in mind, I should remind you the point that Peter made in 1 Peter chapter two, there the apostle Peter tells us that Jesus bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. In other words, when Jesus was crucified there on the cross, he was actually receiving the punishment that we deserve. And in this way, he was actually making a way for sinners like us to receive the gracious gift of forgiveness by which we can be saved from the curse of our fallen flesh. And at the same time, listen, he was also making a way for every unbeliever to search for our Savior. Remember, we will never initiate the search for Jesus Christ. But when he hung there on the cross, he was actually initiating the search for those who are lost so that then we might see him and recognize our need for him. In this way, the cross of Christ, well, it enables unbelievers to respond to his search for us by seeking him back. I like the way that Jesus put it in John chapter 12. There he declares, and I... If I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. From this we can see that the Lord Jesus was determined to draw every unbeliever to himself, and knowing that we're all too short to see our Savior. Spiritually speaking, some of us physically speaking, but we're all too short. We're all too short to seek our Savior. We're unable to seek our Savior left to ourselves. We can rejoice in knowing that our Savior created a tree. And he didn't call us to climb it. But he climbed that tree so that we could see him. Jesus came to the earth in the form of a man born of a virgin and hung from a tree there in Jerusalem. And in this way, he's made it possible for us to now hear his heavenly call so that we can respond to his search for us by searching him back. Now, this brings us to our second point, because listen, our Savior is not only seeking the lost so that sinners might be able to see him, but our Savior also summons the lost so that we might hear his call. And with this as the focus, let's continue to consider the story of Zacchaeus, which is found here in Luke chapter 19. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 5, here Luke tells us that when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And here in these verses, we find our Savior. He's actually summoning Zacchaeus by inviting him to come down from the tree. And just to be clear about what I'm saying, the word summons speaks of an authoritative command by which a person is called to appear before someone else who's in a position of power or authority. And as we consider the way that the Lord Jesus here instructed Zacchaeus to make haste and come down from the tree, we must not fail to realize that this was actually Christ's way of calling Zacchaeus to come down and embrace the salvation that he was seeking when he climbed up into that tree. In order to explain my point further, I want to take another look at the summons that Jesus presents there in the middle of verse five. It's there where Jesus declares, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down for today I must stay at your house. Now, uh, just to be clear about this, it'll help you to know that the word must. Well, it's translated from a Greek word which speaks of a legal necessity which is required by law or by command. Not only that, but the same Greek word was also used in reference to a righteous requirement. And it's a requirement that in this context obligates God to then accomplish every prophetic promise that he's ever presented. When God presents a prophetic promise, he must fulfill that promise. And this includes the promise to save those who search for him with their whole heart. I'm reminded of the prophetic promise that God made in Jeremiah chapter 29. There he declares, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Those who search for the Lord with all of their heart will find the Lord. How do I know? Because God promised. And he must fulfill that promise. The Lord Jesus confirmed this in Luke chapter 11 where he declares, everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. In light of these promises, I'm here to tell you that God has obligated himself to, legally to reveal himself to those who will seek him. And so when Zacchaeus sought Jesus by climbing that tree, Jesus responded by summoning him to come down and be saved. Jesus said, I must spend this time with you. Why? Because he was obligated to, according to the prophetic promise of God. And those who seek God with their whole heart, God is obligated to reveal himself to them. And that's true of anybody. Yeah, the the, the person on the deserted island, the one that everyone's so concerned about. According to the scriptures, God must reveal himself to that person if they seek him with their whole heart. And listen, I'm not talking about the the person, you know, out in a street evangelism situation that says, well, if God's real, you know, let him strike me down right now. And, And then there's no lightning and he goes, see, there's no God. You know, that's not the kind of searching with your whole heart that we're talking about. But the person who will truly seek the Lord with a desire to know him, God is obligated. He must reveal himself to that person. With all this in mind, I want to consider the response of Zacchaeus, which Luke presents here in verse six. There we learn that he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. That word received was translated from a Greek word, which was used of those who accepted another person into their home. The word was also used of those who receive another as a guest and entertain them with happy uh, hospitality and and what this means then is that Zacchaeus was happy to play host as the Lord entered his home. We must not fail to notice here that that Luke tells us there at the end of verse six that, that he received our savior joyfully which is to say that Zacchaeus, he rejoiced as he cheerfully welcomed Jesus into his home. So this wasn't some sort of burden on him. It's, you know, it's, it's not like he, he was like, oh, I guess if you must come over to my house, I guess so. You know, I'm sure we've all had those experiences where we had to let someone into the house because, well, they're a relative and you're not happy about it, but oh, well. It's a familial obligation. We're not talking about that. He happily joyfully, cheerfully received Jesus into his home. And as we consider the way that Zacchaeus joyfully welcomed Jesus into his home, we must not fail to recognize that this is the proper response to the summons of our Savior. When our Savior calls, we should respond by receiving him joyfully. I'll remind you that the Lord Jesus was the one who summoned Zacchaeus to climb down from the tree. Yeah, he, he'd climb the tree to see Jesus, but Jesus said, come down. Come spend time with me. The Lord Jesus was the one who insisted that he must stay, or in other words, abide at the home of Zacchaeus. Well, it's true that Zacchaeus could have rejected this summons from our savior. You know, it's also true that he was happy to obey the calling of Christ. Now with that in mind I can't help but to remember something that Jesus said in Revelation chapter 3 there he declares behold I stand at the door and knock If anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come into him and dine with him and he with me From this we can see that our risen Lord is summoning every sinner to joyfully receive him into our homes and more specifically into our hearts He says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I guarantee you that everyone on the planet has heard the voice of Jesus at some point in time as he summons them to come. But it's not enough to just hear the voice. You must also open the door. Jesus says, I will come in and dine with him. But specifically he says, I will come into him. So this is the door of the heart that we're talking about. When we hear the voice of God and open the door of our heart inviting Jesus to come in and we joyfully receive him, this is how we answer the summons of our Savior. With all this in mind, let's consider the prophetic promise that the Lord Jesus presented to his disciples about how this summons tends to go out. And so hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke. I'd like you to turn in your Bible uh, to John chapter 16 where we find the Lord Jesus explaining the spiritual summons that's being sent out to every unbeliever on the planet. Now, as you make your way to the 16th chapter of John's Gospel account, I just want to take a moment to remind you that the Lord Jesus is the one who promised that he was going to draw all people to himself He said, if I'm lifted up, I'm going to draw everyone to myself. The problem with that promise, though, is found in the fact that it was almost 2000 years ago when the Lord Jesus Christ departed from the planet in a physical sense. It was shortly after his resurrection when Jesus ascended uh, there into heaven. And with that being the case, we should take a moment to ask, well, how is it that the summons of our Savior is being sent out to every sinner? And with this question in mind, let's consider the solution that the Lord Jesus presents here in John chapter 16. Look with me there, beginning at verse 5. Here Jesus declares, But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you asks me where are you going, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus comforting the hearts of his disciples. And he did this by helping them to realize that his ascension into heaven would actually be a benefit for everyone. The reason why is because after his ascension into heaven, he promised to send the helper, the Holy Spirit who was sent with the specific purpose of helping every person on the planet to hear the summons of our savior. Just take into consideration the fact that when Jesus decided that he would take the eastern route to Jericho, he was also deciding to not take the other two routes. And in his physical incarnation, he could only choose one of the three. He couldn't be in Jericho and in Bethlehem at the same time. He couldn't reach lost Zacchaeus there in Jericho and some other Israelite in some other city at the same time. The incarnation of Christ Jesus kept him in one location at one time. And if Jesus decided that, well, he would just continue to remain here till the end of the church age, his ministry would still be very limited to his physicality. And so that wouldn't work. In order to seek and save all of the lost, the Lord Jesus was forced to ascend and send the Holy Spirit back so that the Holy Spirit could convict everyone in the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And while it's true that the Holy Spirit was sent to convict the hearts of every unbeliever, listen, it's also true that the Holy Spirit was sent to help every born-again believer so that then we can share in the work of spreading the summons of our Savior to the rest of the world. In order to prove my point, I want to consider the way that Jesus explains this just before ascending into heaven. So uh, continue holding your place there in the Gospel of Luke. Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Acts. I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 1. See, it's here in the first chapter of Acts, here we find the Lord Jesus. He's helping his disciples to understand that the Holy Spirit was going to be sent on the day of Pentecost and with the specific purpose of empowering every born-again believer so that then we can go out and reach unbelievers with the gospel of grace. I want to consider the conversation as Luke records it here in Acts chapter 1. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 6, here we learn that when they had come together, they asked him saying, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons, which the father has put in his own authority. Uh, Pay attention, date setters. All these people who jump online and try to tell you they figured out, you know, the, the day of the rapture and these sorts of things. Jesus says right before his ascension, it's not for you to know this. This isn't what we're supposed to be focusing on. When is the rapture? Well, according to my calculations, I don't know. It's not for me to know that. What's my job? Well, Jesus says it. Verse 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up. And a cloud received him out of their sight. Now consider the final instructions of our Savior Jesus. The the final instructions that he presents before ascending into heaven. He's telling his disciples, hey, wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We know that to be the day of Pentecost. Pentecost. Because the Holy Spirit will be sent to empower every born-again believer not to figure out the day of the rapture, but instead to go out and be the witnesses of Jesus Christ as we go into the world sharing the gospel message of grace to every unbeliever. And in this way, the Lord Jesus is seeking those who are lost as he sends spirit-filled saints into the world with the gospel of grace by which unbelievers are summoned to receive the salvation of our Savior. Now, this brings us to our third and final point, because listen, our Savior is not only seeking the lost so that sinners might be able to see him. Our Savior is not only some, has not only summons the, 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 the lost so that they might be able to hear his call, But our Savior then saves those lost people that that trust in him. And and with this as the focus, let's make our way back to Luke chapter 19. Here uh, we find uh, Luke's account of the day when Zacchaeus was saved. Look with me again there, beginning in Luke 19, verse 6. Here Luke tells us that Zacchaeus made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, he has gone to be uh, a guest, the man who was a sinner, you know, the, 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 the pearls were clutched and, and they were just offended by the fact that Jesus Christ would spend time with this sinner, Zacchaeus. They complained about Christ Jesus because he was willing to enter the house of a man who was completely despised by all of the Israelites. And in order to understand their issue with Zacchaeus, I should remind you, it was actually back in verse two, there we learned that Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And, and, and listen, you know, I'm not here to, to bash on IRS workers, but we all know. Don't audit me. You won't find nothing, but nobody likes a tax collector. And listen, this was no ordinary tax collector. Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector. He was the head of all the tax collectors. And still, that's not the worst part of this. There at the end of verse two, we learn that he was rich. He was a wealthy tax collector. Here's this public servant rolling in the dough. And and the implication here is that Zacchaeus was a man who had become rich and wealthy by defrauding his kinsmen with charging higher taxes than were due and then keeping the overage for himself. Now, no one would ever do that here in 21st century America, praise the Lord. But if that were to happen, I mean, I'm sure we would all be upset about that. If we were ever to read Rand Paul's Festivus list, then I'm sure that we would all be very upset about what our tax money is being spent on. And what's even worse is that, we all know, we all know there's career politicians who entered into public office, broke, sleeping on someone's couch. And I'm not talking about Colonel Sanders. We all know someone who went into public office and after years of running financial scams, like slush funds and stock market manipulation, somehow, now they're millionaires. Now they have multiple homes, all kinds of money. And, and there's so many different ways to run these scams there in politics. You know, maybe, uh, you know, maybe you just uh, are able to set some you know, what's called uh, black money to the side and uh, black funds and, and, and hide all of this from the public eye and, and you're just scraping off the top the whole time. Or, or maybe you just have a son who somehow gets hired to sit on the board of an energy company somewhere overseas. I don't know. I mean, they're just, just throwing theories out there you know, about you know, being the big guy that's taking money from the son and that sort of thing. I don't know. I mean, just, I'm just making up it as I, as I go along. But the fact is this. We all know that there's wicked politicians who are abusing their position of power for personal gain. We know this is the case. We know it happens all the time. I'll take a moment to in- internally identify. I'm not asking for anybody to shout out any names or anything. But just take a moment to internally identify the most corrupt politician that you can think of. What is her name? I mean, his name. or just It doesn't, it doesn't matter their gender. We don't even know what a woman is anymore. But... How would you feel if you discovered that the Lord Jesus came to town and decided to go have dinner with that person rather than you? Would you be uh, happy about that? Would you be like, oh, good, Jesus is having dinner with President so and so or whoever? Would you complain about his decision? much like the people there in Jericho complained after watching Jesus spending the day with Zacchaeus. Knowing that we're all prone to these critical complaints about crook, crooked politicians, you know, it's, it's important for us to remember that the Lord Jesus didn't come to save those who are righteous, you know, like us. He came to seek and save those who are lost. And listen, this includes sinners who we believe to be beyond the grace of God because their sins are so much worse than our sins, right? I mean, our sins are just hardly anything at all, right? I mean, I'm just about just like Jesus, you know, but just just a little worse, you know. But but oh, those politicians, oh, those crooks, oh, those people in prison, oh, those those sinners. Oh, I don't even I don't even think Jesus would even want to look at them, let alone have dinner with them. Do we? Forget how sinful we are. The word sinner, which is found there in verse 7, is translated from a Greek word which was used of those who are devoted to sin. The word was used of those who are stained with certain vices or crimes. It was used of heathens who were fully given over to their depraved desires. And it was also used of those who were especially wicked, you know, like tax collectors and corrupt politicians. And yet it's important to remember that this is the same Greek word, sinner, that the Lord Jesus used in Luke chapter 5 where he declares, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Christian, listen, the Lord came to save sinners. And not just the sinners that we think are acceptable sinners. he came to seek and save those who are lost. He came to save sinners like Zacchaeus, and yes, despite the fact that Zacchaeus was seen as one of the most sinful men in Jericho. To further grasp my point, I want to take a a moment here to consider the conversion of another tax collector. His name was Matthew. If you would hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke, and let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, you see it's here in the ninth chapter of Matthew's Gospel account. Here we find this former tax collector named Matthew describing the day when he responded in faith to the summons of our Savior Jesus with this as the focus, if you would look with me here at Matthew chapter 9. I want to begin reading there at verse 9 here. Matthew writes, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus inviting this tax collector named Matthew to follow him. And then, you know, the the moment that that, that Matthew took that step of faith and began following Jesus, he immediately became a disciple of Christ. And and next thing you know, this opened the door for other tax collectors to, to kind of see that they could have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And next thing you know, Jesus is hanging out with all these tax collectors and sinners. And that's when these religious leaders were just kind of like, how could you? How could you hang out with these sinful people? Well, because Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Matthew, the tax collector, he not only became a disciple of Christ, he became an apostle. He's one of the 12 apostles. And as we consider the way that Jesus took a a sinful tax collector and turned him into an apostle we would do well to remember that Jesus came to save even the worst of the worst. And we ought to pray towards that end. With this in mind, let's turn back to Luke chapter 19. I want to pick up our study of Luke 19, beginning there at verse eight here. Luke tells us that Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him today, Today salvation has come to this house because he is also a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Here In these verses, we find Zacchaeus, he's demonstrating the fruits of faith. And just to be clear, it'll help you to know that the fruits of saving faith these are the actions that clearly show a changed life. The, you know, the changed life that occurs when a person truly embraces the free gift of grace by faith in Jesus Christ. When we take that step of faith in Jesus and trust in him for our salvation, the fruits of that decision become evident. This is precisely the point that James was making in the second chapter of his epistle. There he declares, show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works you say you have faith show it to me how would you faith is invisible it's immaterial how do you show someone your faith by your works those who have true saving faith in Jesus Christ will begin to bear the visible fruits of their invisible faith through the good works that we perform as we serve our savior. To prove my point, let's take another look here at verse nine. Here the Lord Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Why? Because he did some works? No but because he is also a son of Abraham. The Lord Jesus assured his audience about the salvation of Zacchaeus. And to be clear, it's important to note that Jesus wasn't suggesting that Zacchaeus was saved because he did good works. Oh, well, if you're going to give some money back, then I'll save you. No, that's not what he's saying our Savior confirmed the conversion of this tax collector by informing his audience that the fruit of Zacchaeus' faith, which, uh, evidenced, you know, which was seen in the fact that, you know, that he's you know, walking out that repentance now, the, the, the evidence of this was seen in the, in the fruits of his faith, which then became proof that he is the son of Abraham. Now, before we get that twisted... I should remind you of something that Paul said in Galatians chapter three. It's in Galatians three where Paul declares, Abraham believed God and it was accounted, credited, imputed to him for righteousness. Abraham believed God and it was credited or imputed or accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, Know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are, are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Simply put, The true sons of Abraham aren't natural descendants who are his offspring through an earthly bloodline. No, instead, the true children of Abraham are those who embrace the salvation of our Savior by faith in Jesus Christ in the the same way that Abraham believed God. And because of his faith, it was imputed to his spiritual account as righteousness. Knowing that Zacchaeus had placed his faith in the promised Messiah, The Lord Jesus here is happy to announce that Zacchaeus had been saved, not will be saved. He says today, today salvation has come to this house. He was happy to announce that Zacchaeus had been saved because Zacchaeus had embraced him according to the faith of Abraham. And in light of this announcement, we can rejoice in knowing that every sinner can be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Because those who are of faith are blessed with believing just as Abraham believed. I like the way that Paul sums it up here in Galatians chapter three. It's beginning there at verse 13, where he declares Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us for it is written. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the spirit through what? your faith. Paul here was helping the the Christians there in Galatia to understand that, that, that the blessings of Abraham are available to every single person, whether Jew or Gentile. And the reason why is because Jesus came to seek and save the lost so that we might turn to him and be saved by faith. And now that he's been lifted up for all to see, now that he's climbed that tree, the cross there at Calvary, The Holy Spirit is now summoning every sinner to come to the cross so that we can receive the blessings of salvation according to the faith of Abraham. Now, as we begin to wrap up this study, I just want to take a moment to remind you here that our Savior was sent to seek the lost so that sinners might have the opportunity to see our Savior. Our Savior then summons the lost so that they might hear his heavenly calling. And then our Savior saves the lost who will simply place their faith in him. As we consider the way that our Savior seeks, summons, and then saves the lost who trust in him, we must not forget that those who are lost can only be found if they joyfully receive Jesus by faith. Those who are lost can only be found if they joyfully receive Jesus by faith. With that being the case, it's crucial for every Christian to remember that the Lord is now calling believers to go and lead the lost to the foot of the cross so that they can see Jesus, so that they can hear that summons, and so that they might be found as they place their faith in him. I love the way that John Newton celebrated this incredible truth when he penned the lyrics of his famous hymn, Amazing Grace. He writes, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace, my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Without debate, it's the amazing grace of God that led the father to to decide to send his only begotten son to come and seek those who are lost. And it's the amazing grace of God that led Jesus then to come and climb that tree and die on that cross so that then we could see him and so that we could hear the summons that he sends out to every sinner. And it's the amazing grace of God that helps those who are lost to then exercise saving faith by which we are found. And with that being the case, I encourage every Christian in closing, let's commit our lives to proclaiming the gospel of grace so that those around us who are still lost can be found by faith in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.